Ken read a moment ago from Colossians 1, and the point that Paul is making and that we'll unpack this morning is this. Truly knowing Christ results in transformation, not just information. If you're taking notes, that'd be a good initial thing to write down. Truly knowing Christ results in transformation, not just information. I'd like to see a show of hands here before we get too deep into that. How many of you have either got a food allergy or you know someone with a food allergy? Okay, there's a fair amount of you. I've got a bit of an obscure food allergy. I'm allergic to buckwheat. Is anybody else allergic to buckwheat this morning? Well, I'm used to being the only one, so this just continues the norms here. Um, But buckwheat's something you'll find sometimes in homemade pancakes or sort of bizarre crackers or pretzels or grains, that sort of thing. And um, my reaction is an anaphylactic reaction, right? And so my, my airway swells up, and as, as some of you may know, the more reactions you have, they get progressively worse, and I've had a fair amount. So at this point in my life, each time I have one, it's a, literally could be a life and death matter. I recall a number of years ago, I was at Emily's grandfather's house, and we were sitting around watching TV, and he had some pretzels, and I grabbed them, and I was eating, and, and if you've got an anaphylactic reaction, you, you'll understand, at least I hope you will, as I do, I can take a bite and I don't have to have the whole bite even be into my throat before I immediately know something is terribly wrong, right? I chew it up and it's in my saliva and I'm, as I'm still chewing before anything has gone down, my heart rate quickens, I tense, I start to, to twitch a little bit. So Emily's looking across the family room, and she says, are you okay? She knew that look in my eye. And I said, no, I think there's, I think there's buckwheat in these pretzels. So we got up, and we're, we're sprinting through Grandpa's house, getting through the cupboards, trying to find some Benadryl, and we, we quickly can't find any. Maybe he had it, maybe it was hidden, whatever. And said, we can't waste our time, so we jumped in the car, and she drove the fastest she's ever driven because she's a classic rule follower, and this time the rules didn't matter. We're bursting 100 miles an hour down the 30-mile-an-hour road. We get to the CVS, we race in, we get down the aisle, we rip open the package of Benadryl, and just like Hitch, I begin to chug it in the middle of the aisle. We don't have time to mess around with the checkout protocols. Now, I'll, I'll warn you, or at least assure you, I didn't drink as much as he did, so it's okay. But it was an emergency, right? And, and I could tell you facts about a food allergy and anaphylactic reactions and what it feels like when I sense that buckwheat begin to get into my system. But the knowledge about a food allergy is far more than cold, distant, abstract facts for me. When I hear food allergy, my heart rate quickens immediately. It changes how I look at the world. It changes how I think about those things. And if if you've been in that spot with yourself or with a kid, you know what that's like. It's no longer just information. It's transformation. My daughter had a peanut allergy, fortunately. She grew out of it. And I recall one time we'd, we'd been to the restaurant and explained, here's the situation. Here's what we've got going on. Peanut allergy, please wipe everything down. They said they did, but on the way home, she's scratching and her throat's not doing something. You know, you know something's wrong. She's two. She can't verbalize it. So you're kind of freaking out as a parent. And I remember the, the fear in my heart as we raced to the emergency room over in Avon, and get her in as quickly as possible. Like, take care of my little girl. 
much information about, oh, peanuts this, peanuts that. Is it a tree nut? Is it? No. It transforms how you walk. Maybe some of you can relate to that in a little bit different way, perhaps not a food allergy. Maybe you know what that's like when it comes to receiving a medical diagnosis. Where at one point you could have heard a bad diagnosis and you might have known these scriptures that should be cited, how God is the God of all comfort how there's peace that passes all understanding that should guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How God never wastes the tears of his saints. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. But then when it happened to you or to your loved one, you know that feeling inside of you that is profoundly different, where everything tightens and your mind races Your blood pressure spikes and you don't know exactly what to think because it seems like everything's spinning. See, that transforms how you see and walk through any other opportunity, any other process of a bad medical diagnosis for someone. It's the difference between knowing about food allergies, between knowing about various diagnoses, and truly knowing them. You see, the difference between knowledge about and truly knowing is that knowledge goes from being general to being precise. It goes from being abstract to being intensely personal. It goes from being informational to being transformational. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. It's a church the church at Colossae, that prided themselves on their knowledge. They had intense knowledge. And the Colossian church had begun to define spiritual maturity as possessing a certain kind of knowledge. They said spiritual maturity is having Jesus and these additional deeper kinds of knowledge. There were three in particular that the the Colossians had sort of put forward. They said there was a severe sort of self-discipline that would unlock higher levels of Christianity. It it was like if you would fast for a week and memorize the, the, the outline of the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, as well as the major themes and how they're cited in the New Testament as well. In the midst of that fast and memorization project, you get locked into higher spirituality. Oh, that's the truly spiritually mature person. And then they'd add on to that. And they had these sort of secret passwords that they borrowed from Eastern mysticism where if you, if you see what this means and what that means and how this numerology connects to that numerology, then that unlocks the keys to a higher spirituality. That's what spiritual maturity is. Jesus plus these secret passwords. And they borrowed for some, from Judaism in saying you must be able to map out the end times in a particular way. And so if you have Jesus and this more advanced knowledge of the end times, that's what spiritual maturity actually looks like. This is the church that Paul is writing to. And so the Colossian church had not gone apostate. They'd not denied the gospel. They hadn't said that Jesus was not the Christ. But they'd become a little bit bored with him because you needed Jesus plus these other forms of higher knowledge to find true spiritual maturity. 
said they weren't apostates, but they had become apathetic towards Christ. They didn't stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You see, they didn't deny the faith, but they did become bored with Jesus. They didn't walk away, but they did lose their awe. I wonder if that hasn't happened to some of us in 2020. It's not that you've denied the faith. It's not that you've walked away. If you're still here on a, a cold, rainy day when the power's going out for crying out loud. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're at home. That's okay, too. But what happens is when we become apathetic towards Christ, when we lose our awe, we start to believe subtle lies that move us gradually away from truly knowing Christ. And we begin to believe subtle lies that says God is good to us before we believe that God is good for us. We start to believe that God should be sought for the provision he can provide rather than seeking him as the provision himself. We start to believe that we should seek God because he will give us things before we realize and believe that God has promised to give us the greatest thing in the world, namely himself. We start to believe these subtle lies when Jesus is not so exciting, not so amazing, not so attractive, not so beautiful. We look for the things instead of Jesus, the gift instead of the giver. Maybe you know Romans 1, and maybe you, you could quote it line by line, that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And you say, look what's happening in our godless culture. They're doing it. And you're not wrong. But it happens in the church too where we trade the creator out and say, give me the created things because that's where real joy is found. This is the knowledge base that the Colossians came with. They just become apathetic towards Christ and start believing subtle lies. And so Paul comes to them, and it's fascinating how Paul addresses them. I'd invite you to look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 we read that uh, he asked that you may be filled with all the knowledge. Would you circle that word in your Bible? Knowledge in verse 9. And then again in verse 10, that you would increase in the knowledge. Circle knowledge in verse 10 there again. The common word for knowledge was gnosis. Knowledge, gnosis. And Paul writes in those two words in Colossians 1, 9, 1, 10, he doesn't use the word gnosis, he uses the word epigenosis. Do you hear the similarity? It says, there's a different knowledge I'm going to challenge you to, O Colossian church. Yes, it's good that you have knowledge. I see your knowledge. Let me call it and raise you another knowledge. This epigenosis means a precise and correct knowledge. It's the difference between a, a general informational knowledge that the Colossians had and a precise and correct transformational knowledge that Paul had. Shows up four times in Colossians. And Paul sees this church, says, it's good that you have knowledge. I'm not going to push that away. You ought to be pursuing knowledge more. But let's get a better, a more correct, a more precise knowledge here. It reminds me of the movie Hoosiers. Coach Norman Dale shows up. He comes into the gym to see what his high school team has at Hickory High. And 
course, all the guys are so excited to show him their shooting skills. And what does Coach Dale say? He says, I see that you guys can shoot, but there's more to the game than shooting. There's fundamentals and defense. Thank you, Donna. Somebody's seen the movie. Maybe you remember that. He says, no, no, it's good that you see they're shooting. You need to shoot. You have to score to win. But there's more to this than just shooting. And Paul's saying, oh, Colossian church, it's good that you have knowledge about Christ. That's great. But there's more to it than just knowledge about. It's truly knowing him. That's what it's about. So Parkside, I come this morning bringing this message from Colossians 1. And your knowledge about Christ may be on point. You may be able to spot heresy a mile away. You may be able to, to parse out the Trinity and the hypostatic union, map out the end times and all the mysteries of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You may be able to theologically slap Joel Osteen. And it'd be good if you did, perhaps. You've got great knowledge about Christ, but do you truly know him? Do you have a transformational knowledge of him? As the psalmist would say, do you long for him like the deer pants for water? Or maybe in a slightly more modern way, do you long for time in his word like you long for COVID to end? Do you long to sit at his feet like you long for the Senate to stay red? Do you long for his return like you long for Wall Street to be up and to the right? Do you have this transformational knowledge of Christ? If I can just be personal in sharing about this with you, it's, it's one of those things when you start to think about it, you, you sort of intuitively know, at least I do, yeah, I, I know that my affections probably aren't stirred for Christ quite like they should be, but self-assessment is hard, isn't it? Like, how do I, it's hard to look inward. You know, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Certainly, I can't even know it myself. I need God to peel back the layers of darkness and show me what's in my own heart. So from an assessment standpoint, I invite you to turn your Bible back just one page, at least one page in my Bible, to Philippians 3, a different letter that Paul wrote. There's a, there's a helpful assessment tool he gives us in Philippians 3. I'm going to look at verse 7, and, and just, just to set a brief context here, what Paul is writing in Philippians 3 is to say, here are all the things I had gained, and when I got Christ, Christ was better than these things, and the things that I then set aside because I had Christ, I count them as loss. And it was better that I had Jesus, and it's transformed how I live. That's, in essence, what Paul is saying here. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, we read, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We read that and we look inward. Say, have I counted these things as rubbish? things I've lost. Maybe you look at it and you say, boy, I've, I've sought to love Jesus with everything I've got, to honor him with my time, talent, and treasure. And maybe I could have had a, a second house, a vacation house, but I was so committed to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Or maybe I could have enjoyed those cult season tickets, but I was always serving on Sundays, and Sunday just wasn't a day that I could get down to Lucas Oil or the RCA Dome. Or maybe you say, there's friends that I thought I could have had, perhaps Christian friends, but all they do is just gossip and complain, and they're a source of bitterness, and I've recognized that having Christ is better than those friends and how that drags me down. I count it as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Or perhaps there's a, a corporate advancement that you could have had if you would have fudged this or that number or said this thing that just wasn't quite accurate about this person or that person to get a leg up. And you say, I count it as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But if I'm honest with myself, and I think if you're honest with yourself, you would admit there are days where you do better and days where you do a little worse, where you think that the Vacation house might be pretty nice. You wonder if it's worth it. You wonder if those season tickets to the Colts would be a better investment of your Sunday. You wonder if life wouldn't be better to be with those friends at that restaurant on your normal weekly date. You wonder if that career and everything that would have come with it would have been worth it. Can I just push you back to Paul's words in Philippians 3 and use this as our assessment guide? He says he counted all those things as rubbish. That word rubbish is a, it's a, it's a that's the kindest way you can translate that word. Other translations will call it dung or manure. And other translations would use a crasser version of dung or manure. You can figure out what that means. And so while we find ourselves semi-longingly looking across the path to say, oh, but maybe it was worth it, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe I wish I had that thing that I've counted as loss. Do you hear how Paul is describing this? I don't know anyone that looks at a pile of manure and says, oh, that that was in my living room. Do you see how Paul has been so radically transformed? He says, not just I've lost them, but I count them as rubbish, as dung, as manure. I don't want them because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Friend, is that you this morning? Let Philippians 3 be that self-assessment tool to look inward and see what kind of transformational knowledge of Christ do I have? I love how J.I. Packer talks about his verse in Philippians 3. He says, what normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? Yet this is, in effect, what many of us do. It shows how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God. Reminds me of the song we often sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If the things of earth are not growing strangely dim, or even if they are, friend, I would urge you to turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so in what follows of Colossians 1, you may turn back there, are three transformations of truly knowing Christ. We see the Apostle Paul lay these out, three transformations of truly 
knowing Christ. The first one is that you will see transformed prayers to Christ. Look at verse 9. Let me read 9 through 12. Paul's exhibiting transformed prayers to Christ, evidence that he truly knows Christ. He writes, And so, from the day we heard, that being heard of their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, Your prayers reveal what is valuable to you. Your prayers reveal what's valuable to you. And so Paul says, from the day we first heard, we were giving thanks because knowing Christ is valuable and we saw that you know him. And we continued to pray that you know him more deeply and increase in his knowledge because this is what's valuable. Can you attest to this reality that that your prayers reveal what's valuable to you? Maybe you could say, from the day we first heard of that health crisis, we have not ceased to pray for you. From the day we first heard of potential layoffs at your employer, we have not ceased to pray for you. Since the day we first heard of election fraud, we've not ceased to pray for you. Since the day we first heard of your pregnancy, we've not ceased to pray for you. Our prayers reveal what's valuable to us. And Paul prays wondrously about their spiritual state, giving thanks that they know Christ and asking that they would know him more deeply. Paul, mind you, is in prison here. And first century prison is not 21st century prison. There are not regular meals. There probably are not meals at all. There is no cable TV. There are not weights to be lifted. And so Paul, who knows when the last time he ate was, and as a good Baptist boy, I'll affirm and confess to you, I love food. And you take away my food and I get hangry. And yet Paul, writing from a disgusting cell, if it could even be called a cell, without food, without friends, without warmth, probably without light, is transfixed on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. My prayer would start, God, get me out of this hole. And you guys come and get me out of here and bring me something to eat, even if it's just animal crackers. That's not what you hear. He doesn't just know about Christ. He truly knows Christ. Just like Jesus said, Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see what's in Paul's heart, and that's what comes out. Prayers reveal our affections. You see, the idea is not that you should cease to pray about temporal matters, right? The point is not like, well, you shouldn't be praying for Paul to get out of prison, or you shouldn't be praying for this or that thing that I may have spoken about earlier. No, you should pray about those. Right, Acts 12, we read Peter's in prison. The church holds an all-night prayer vigil and God hears their prayers and blesses and releases Peter miraculously from prison. So the point is not that you would not pray about these things. It's just that your affections would be for Christ. 
So maybe you're listening, you're like, well, Justin, my, my prayers this week have been pretty weak. They may not have existed at all because I'm just kind of self-reliant and I don't necessarily even, wouldn't say it this way, but if you look at my prayer life, I don't even think I need God because I just think I can handle it myself. Or maybe your prayers are just at a surface level. Help me on this test. Help me to remember my lines in the school play. Help me in this presentation at work. How do I change my affections? I see that my affections have not been changed for Christ. I don't have transformed prayers. This coffee mug sits in my office, and it's full of air. There's no coffee in it right now, sadly. And if I want to get the air out of it, there's all sorts of things I could try. I could flip it upside down, and it doesn't seem to help. I could reach in and try and grab it and pull it out. I could call Pastor Scott and ask him to construct some air suction device at one of his labs and see if that could get it out. And I still think there will probably be air stuck in there, although I wouldn't put it past him. But what's the surest way to get the air out of my coffee cup? To go brew some coffee and pour it in and a better affection forces the air out and there's nowhere for it to remain in there. Same is true for us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The first transformation of truly knowing Christ is a transformed prayer life. The second transformation of truly knowing Christ is transformed contentment in Christ. Transformed contentment in Christ. Look Back at verse 11 with me, this is part of the prayer that, that Paul prays. He, verse 11 reads, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So I read that. Think about what's on Paul's mind. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And he says, if you have your strength with all God's power, according to all God's glorious might, it's so that you would be able to endure and be patient with great joy. You'd be content in Christ. Is this not what he says in Philippians 4? I've learned what it means to be high and brought low, to have much and to have nothing. I've learned that in all things, I can have contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've transformed contentment in Christ. And too often, I at least, and I think the rest of us think, if I was strengthened with all God's power, according to all God's glorious might, if I had that kind of power at my disposal, then maybe I would be able to overcome my anxiety. Maybe I would be able to find that relationship that I've been longing for. Maybe if I was strained with all God's power, according to all God's glorious might, maybe, just maybe, I could make the media honest. Right? There's all these things that we think about, and they're not bad things to wish for, but what does Paul say? The first thing on his mind, that if I am strengthened with all God's power, according to all God's glorious might, that I would be strengthened in him. That I would find sustenance in him, that I could endure and be patient with great joy, not begrudgingly, not resentfully, not wishing it were otherwise, but like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, so that he may be seated at the right hand of God. 
Second transformation of truly knowing Christ is you have transformed contentment in Christ. And of course, no one would say, at least I don't think you would say, oh, wow, Jesus, I, I know that something's better than you. Or I think that something's better than you. Or mm, I'd really rather have this than you, Jesus. Of course, we wouldn't say that out loud. But friend, you know what's in your heart. You know the intensity with which you long for the dark night of the soul to pass, for the depression to lift, for that relationship to exist. What Paul's saying here is you will be strengthened according to God's great power with all his glorious might so that if the depression doesn't lift, you can endure with patience because you have Christ. And if that relationship never comes to be, if the promotion never comes and you're always stuck in the dead-end job, you can endure with great patience and with great joy because you have Christ. It's the second transformation of truly knowing Christ. It's transformed contentment. The third transformation of truly knowing Christ transformed thoughts of Christ. Transformed thoughts of Christ. I fear in the American church, we, we think too lowly of Jesus. We tend to think of, of Jesus as our co-pilot. I was in a Bible study one time. Important to note, this was a co-ed Bible study. And one of the um, verses we were studying cross-referenced the Song of Solomon. We came together for the study, and one of the individuals said, I read this and I realized all along, I've always thought of myself as a princess. I read the Song of Solomon, I realized Jesus is my prince and he's coming to get me and we're gonna live in a castle. We're not gonna step too deeply into Song of Solomon this morning. The kids are with us. But let's just say that's too low a view of Jesus. Maybe you think he's your, your counselor or your friend, and he certainly is those things. But he's more. Maybe you're more theologically robust than that. You think that oh, Jesus or Justin, those things are silly. I know somebody says that, but not me. I mean, what does that look like? Maybe, maybe you pray a formulaic prayer before every single meal. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Certainly true. Certainly powerful. You ought to pray that prayer. You ought to be thankful for what he did. But he's been reduced to a formula before meals that doesn't grip your heart, grab your affections, and transform your life. We think thoughts that are too low of Christ. And truly knowing Christ will transform your thoughts of Christ. So look back at the scriptures with me. Let's read an extended section here, verses 15 through 20. One of the most magnificent explanations of who Christ is in the entire scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Wow. It starts out saying, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's a springboard for many heresies, most notably and most recently from the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are simply echoing an older heresy known as the Arian heresy. So what Jehovah's Witnesses will say is that Jesus was the first created being and the greatest created being. He was the firstborn of all creation. See, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is not God. He's not eternal. It's a heresy. Reject it. How do I know? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Firstborn may mean chronologically, but it can also mean firstborn in rank or honor. So I'm not going to turn there, but just write down Psalm 89, 27. Psalm 89, 27, God promises David, I will make you the firstborn. Well, we know David wasn't chronologically the firstborn, but he was the firstborn in terms of rank or in honor. Or you could turn to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or if you get tired of turning to all these other pages, you could just read the verse right after it and let the immediate context answer the objection that he is before all things. So reject that heresy. But the third transformation I said is the transformation of thoughts about Christ. I just want you to picture in your mind's eye what's being said here. Paul says, Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And he's the firstborn in rank and in honor. He's the most important of all. He has supremacy over all things. For all things were made by him. They were made through him and for him. Think about the, what that's saying. They're made by him and through him and for him. That makes my head hurt to try and piece together exactly everything that means, but I know it's incredible that he can do that. Amen? He's before all of it, and he simultaneously holds it all together. <laughs> wow. And what do you do with your day job? Not only that, he's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. Again, not just chronologically, because he'd already raised Lazarus from the dead, but he's the most important to ever raise from the dead, because in his resurrection from the dead, death itself was defeated. Hope is given. Eternal life can be had. So there's this majestic picture of Christ being painted. It's this mural as if you could see it driving down 465 across the whole of the Indianapolis skyline in vivid colors, so bright you can't help but to gaze at it. Wow. This is Jesus. That in all things he might be preeminent. This summer I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time. I had the moment when I, I walked up to the edge and I looked and I couldn't not look. 
just gripped me. The awe, the majesty, the splendor. Wow. And then I snapped back to make sure my kids were okay. <laughs> Maybe you've had an experience like that where, oh, I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty of what is set before me. This is the Jesus that's being painted here. Turn your eyes upon him. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul continues to expand the thoughts you have of Christ. Not just a majestic Christ, but a humble Christ. Look at what he says in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The God who made everything, who made it by his strength and for his glory. And it was through him and ultimately comes back for him. And he's holding it all together. And he was before all things. And oh, by the way, he's the head of the church, the firstborn from it. And all of that and was pleased to dwell in a human. A lowly, weak earth. How could the eternal one, who has the majestic mural trying to depict just the first sliver of who he is, how could the eternal one step into time? How could the all-knowing one go to school? How could the all-powerful one gain the strength to swing a hammer? And perhaps more importantly, why would he want to? Here's why. Greatness is magnified by lowliness. Greatness is magnified by lowliness. You may wonder what I mean by that. I think you actually get it better than you understand right now. Let me, let me show you how you get this. The NFL understands this beautifully. Think of their quarterbacks. 6'5", 230 pounds, rocket laser arm, can throw the ball 800 yards in the air, can bench press 6 trillion pounds, can outrun a cheetah, and supposedly has the intelligence to be stacked up against any MIT postdoctoral student. Right? And they tell you, this great modern God is worthy of your worship. And they convince the entire nation to give their tithes and offerings so that we can construct majestic temples to come and pay our homage on Sunday. And what is the NFL ad campaign while you're paying your homage and giving your worship on Sunday? What does it highlight? How these modern gods are at elementary schools reading to second graders. How they're stopping by at the oncology department at Riley. Not only are they bigger, faster, stronger, more skilled and more intelligent than anyone you know in any of those ways, they also care about kids. Truly, they are worthy of worship. Greatness is magnified by lowliness. And if that's true on a, a silly level about an NFL quarterback, how much more so about the great God of the universe who has made it all through his power, by his strength, for his glory, and holds it all together. And he enters in 
the heart of Jesus close to sinners and to sufferers. He became like us in every respect so that he could sympathize with our weakness, the book of Hebrews tells us. So that whether you're facing a a struggle against sin and you don't think you can win, he's with you. Or a trial that you don't think is fair and you don't know if it'll ever end, he's with you. Wow. Turn. fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Not just he did. He was pleased to. (laughs) I don't even have words for it. He was pleased to. I get to do this so that you would see how majestic I am on display in my love for you. Wow. He was pleased also, it says, to reconcile all things to himself so that all things that have gone wrong through the curse would one day be reversed. This is why at Christmas we sing joy to the world that says no more let sins and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Really is a song about his second coming, not his first coming, but that's okay. We can keep singing it at Christmas. This is Jesus. And not only has God been pleased to dwell in him and pleased to reconcile all things to him, whether on earth or in heaven, but also was pleased to make peace by the blood of his cross. In some ways, it seems like an odd tack on if you're not familiar with the biblical storyline. What do you mean, peace? This is a majestic picture of Christ. I didn't know there was a war. Where'd that come from? Maybe you're not sure what I'm saying here. The story of the Bible is that God in his majesty created this universe and created us for his glory, that we would know him and enjoy him forever. And we on our own said, no, I I don't think I want to know you and enjoy you forever. God, no, I want to know myself and enjoy myself forever. I want to know and enjoy your things, but not you, God. Like the prodigal son, I've wanted your stuff, but not you. And we've made war on God, said, no, I want to be the king. I want to set the rules. I want to pursue what I want to pursue, not what you've said. And so Jesus came, recognizing the hostility between us and God, how our sins, our turning away from God, had promised us death forever, forever separation from God, in a place called hell, a real place. He says, I know you can't end this war, but I'm going to end it for you. I will come and I will sympathize and empathize with you in every way. And I will go to the cross and I will make peace so that if you will simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Friend, I wonder this morning, you may not know hardly anything I'm talking about. Maybe the first time you've tuned in in a long time or the first time ever, but you know this much. You say, I know that I am a great sinner. And I know that no matter how hard I try to get out of this mess and in this war, it just seems to get worse 
and I need help from the outside. And I don't know who this Jesus is that you're talking about exactly, but I'd like to find out and get to know his help and see what it looks like. Friend, can I just tell you that if you will confess this morning that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross to save you of your sins, and he rose again to conquer death, you will confess that you can be saved. You can have eternal life with God. You can know your maker. That's what he wants for you. I wonder if there's not others of you that are here this morning or tuning in online. And you say, Justin, I know most of the facts you shared today. It was a good reminder. I appreciate that. But the more I think about it, I think my life has been filled with attending this church or others like it and learning knowledge about Christ, and I don't know that I've ever truly known him. You talk about those affections being certain. I don't know that story. I know the facts. I know the systematic theologies. Let me just tell you, friend, come home running. His arms are open wide. His name is Jesus. He's the answer that you've been looking for. So this morning, come home running just as you are. And maybe there's others of you here this morning. And I, Justin, I know I've been transformed by Christ. I don't just have a, an abstract, general, informational knowledge about him. No, I know him. But I've lost my awe. And I've lost my wonder. The Jesus I see in Colossians 1, the majestic mural of everything he's done, the greatness magnified by the lowliness. Oh, I've lost my awe. 2020's been a bear. I get it. I've become distracted by lesser things. It's the same call to you as well. Come home running. Confess to Jesus. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's good. His heart never grows tired of dispensing mercy. It's not something he has that he could give out that he might run out of. It's who he is. And when he's hugged and squeezed the tightest by you, that's what bubbles out. Mercy. I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Come back. So as we go to communion in a moment, let me just encourage you. Consider your awe. Have you lost it? Are you a little bored with Jesus? Truly knowing Christ results in transformation not just information. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are amazing. That you are before all, over all, above all, in all, and yet concerned for our lives. We can scarcely wrap our minds around it. It seems too good to be true, but it is who you say you are. And so we're going to take you at your word and say, Jesus, thank you. 
Forgive us for our hearts growing cold and bored with your majesty and with your humility. Give us eyes to see the wonder of who you are. Give us ears to hear the goodness of your message. And give us grace to repent and turn back to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.